I'm John. I'm an alcoholic. I uh, just feel a privilege to be here and to uh, introduce uh, my friend and, and to thank God that uh, he is in the program with us and uh, he's the leader as far as I'm concerned with the uh, disease of addiction. And just briefly, I'd like to mention how I met him was a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist in Oregon called and said, we're having a, a retreat for couples in Oregon. We'd like you to come over. He said, Dr. Oka's wife, Fanula, will be there and put on a workshop for relationships. And uh, I'm in a new relationship every week, so I took the, the girl, at <laughs> Marty, with me, and, and I took her with me, and uh, we went through the presentation. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, we went over on Saturday, and Marty left me Monday. And uh, I, <laughs> I never forgot it, but I, I, I fell in love with, with, uh, with Garrett and Fanula. And, and Garrett, I followed him, and he's always the leader. He's on the cutting edge. And I always loved his presentations. One time I, I flew from Boise to New Orleans because he had something new that he now uses all the time, and I, I got to see it. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce my friend, Garrett. Thank you, John, for that uh, really wonderful introduction. I really appreciate it, and uh, good afternoon to all of you here. Um, Yesterday I omitted to thank the committee and the other organizers of the uh, convention here for inviting me and for inviting Fanula back after our uh, time here in Salou. That was used to be an unusual event where I'd be invited back anywhere, but it happens with more frequency now. Uh, yesterday I played you Brahms Lullaby because it is an after an after lunch event and sleeping in hypoglycemia often overwhelms people and they nod off and then feel very guilty if they fall off their chair or something like that. So I just want to, I understand that. And in order to give you the full delegation, I played Bram's lullaby yesterday. Today, it's another lullaby. Thank you. Sleep peacefully without shame or guilt. <laughs> this presentation is largely about shame or guilt. I was about to use my comb as the clicker. It comes like um, other presentations that I've made from my own personal experience. And I look at my character defects and my difficulty and struggles in life and try and turn them into teaching opportunities for myself and others. And this is, I give this uh, a lecture like this to patients on a monthly basis, and all of them, when I ask them, uh, for whom in the audience um, uh, is procrastination, and, and not just an inconvenience, but a real problem, and 95% of the patients coming into our treatment center put up their hands. So let me ask here, for whom in this problem of recovering alcoholics, enablers, and so on, uh, would uh, procrastination be more than just a mild inconvenience, but a significant problem? I'm at home. <laughs> I feel completely at home. And of course, in Ireland, where I come from, there's a marvelous story about a a conference of philologists, meaning people who are interested in the study of words and the derivation of words. And it's a story about a Spanish philologist and an Irish philologist at this conference. And the Spanish philologist comes up to the Irish professor and says, Professor, we have a word in Spanish, mañana, means tomorrow. What would be the equivalent in Gaelic of our word mañana for tomorrow? And the Irish philologist said, hmm, mañana. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Uh, uh, 
I know. He said, I don't think we have a word with such an urgent connotation. (laughs) (laughs) I grew up in an alcoholic country where that was the philosophy of life. See, one of the things about procrastination is it's, it's like lawyers and psychiatrists. People laugh at lawyers and psychiatrists and procrastination. Why? The people are afraid of psychiatrists because they think we can see into their minds and, and sort of discern their madness at a glance. And people are afraid of lawyers for very good reasons. And uh, also, procrastination is something that there is a deep and underlying terror of, as we'll see. And so all we, nobody understands it. It is under the radar. There are no seminars or workshops on it. And if we could, if we could, as we'll see, cure procrastination in the United States, for example, by January 1st, the entire country would collapse under the weight of efficiency. Because the economy, the politics, and everything else, as we'll see, is geared to delay overdue documents, procrastination, and so on, and there are vast revenues involved. I love this one. Uh, The script says, you know, it's almost time to put the darn thing up again anyway, and it's June. (laughs) See, this this poor Christmas tree. Uh, That's me. I mean, that's me. (laughs) And in that sense, procrastination is a neurotic form of conservation of energy. It it prevents you from doing unnecessary things that can wait until later and thereby concern energy for doing things uh, that have to be done immediately. See, again, going back to my knowledge of Latin from the Jesuits, crass means uh, tomorrow in Latin, pro means in favor of, and they're procrastination in favor of tomorrow. You put it off until tomorrow. And when I was studying this and trying to understand the whole problem, because it affected me so much and so many other people, it's a group phenomenon, procrastination, we'll see again, system phenomenon, I couldn't find a word to say the opposite. People talk about anti-procrastination or meta-procrastination, and again, my knowledge of Latin and the Jesuits came to the rescue. Hodier in Latin means today. So clearly... Uh, the cure for procrastination is not to put it off until tomorrow, but to do it today, a day at a time, do it. And I uh, hear prohodiation, and that's a new word in the science, the scientific language. Prohodiation is the opposite of procrastination, do it today, and it contains within it the recommendation um, for um, cure. So this is understanding procrastination for recovering alcoholics. So this slide comes up periodically just to remind us what we're doing and remind us that 90% of the people put up their hands to indicate that procrastination is a significant problem. And the purpose of it is to avoid or postpone realistic appraisal of one's own personal or professional performance because ultimately if you never get it done, the quality of your work can never be, it'll always remain in speculative space. What might have been, what could have been, if I had all the resources, if I had the time and so on and so forth. You never really have to be tested. Like Jim, I'm sure Jim uh, from yesterday could uh, identify with this when he said that reality was not his favorite topic. Uh, Testing reality, he would prefer to be in some kind of speculative fantasy. And that's exactly what, you can maintain your fantasy of who and what you are in terms of your performance, if you never get the job done or if you create a situation in which it is impossible to do the job properly, you can always keep alive the possibility that under other circumstances you would have been okay. There's a lot of commercial exploitation and procrastination, Christmas. Valentine's Day is the single, at least in the United States, the single biggest day of retail sales in the United States because people can't make up their mind who they love or hate or who they want to give it to or what. Uh, Mother's Day, all of these things, anniversaries, oops, excuse me, uh, credit card interest rates, late fees and penalties. Entire municipalities um, uh, exist on these. Late fees and penalties, the Internal Revenue Service, billions upon billions upon billions of dollars in late fees and credit card interest rates, which are extraordinary. So it's not far from the truth. I I would like to get an economist really to sketch out the consequences of the actual dollar, pound, euro expense of procrastination as a function of the human condition. 
This is from the, uh, the uh, London Observer in 1918, showing that it was even a problem then. And it's a man a week before Christmas coming, talking about getting his presents then. It's five days before Christmas, and he'll buy them tomorrow. And then he's thinking about what he'll buy for t- particular people. Four days, well, he, he meant to, he didn't bring his money today. So three days, you see, he's, he's hurrying up a little. The anxiety is beginning to build. I have no time uh, today. Then two days before Christmas, he comes along and look at the throng. They're all piling in there. And finally, on Christmas Eve, uh, he takes anything. He does, his choice is gone. I'll take anything. And so, again, procrastination has forced him into a situation of buying things he didn't necessarily want, but he would fulfill his duty by it. Uh, I think it's very interesting that that comes from 1918. See, it protects the individual from the anxiety of authentic evaluation of our performance or competence. Things that are normally procrastinated. You might have a lot of, of things in your will, for example. We're only doing that fairly recently. Because it brings up all kinds of things for retirement. Your will, who you're going to leave the money to, what happens, who dies. It brings up fear of mortality. So it's something that tends to be dental care. I suffer from poor, uh, from gum rot for years of drinking and then postponement of adequate dental care. Medical care, the same thing. I have a weight problem that I should lose. I keep on postponing it. For people contacting AA, getting a sponsor and starting the steps. Major, major forms of procrastination because it's something that makes people uncomfortable. So that's the, that anything that makes us feel uncomfortable will be procrastinated. Your style of procrastination. You, again, may have your own individual styles. Raiding the refrigerator and eating cheesecake until you become comatose and can't do it until the next day anyway. (laughs) Reading mystery novels and science fiction that absolutely has to be read so that you're up to date on the latest technologies. Calling up friends that you haven't called for years but somehow seem urgent at that moment at two in the morning in Australia. Uh, Become obsessed with cleaning. Of course, this is very common. And it goes office, kitchen, house, car, street. Uh, You know... (laughs) other places you've been public toilets in the bus station and things. you go to any lengths to avoid whatever it is needs to be avoided go out Jimmy sit and staring keep on doing more research on the paper or the topic whatever it is bring the dog to the vet dog doesn't need to go to the vet but you never know and have to prophylactic examination at the cost of $300 it's worth it not to have to sit in the goddamn room with that thing you're supposed to do go shopping have sex I make my will call my mother-in-law, whatever it may be. See, the consequences can range from mildly inconvenient to utterly catastrophic. They really can. Look at this. These are consequences. External, you can lose money by not doing things on time, lose friendship, lose your grades in college or wherever, failure to complete academic programs, people drop out, miss a college degree, miss medical school, conflict at work, stuff with co-workers because if you don't pull up your end, they suffer. So it's a group phenomenon. A bad credit rating. If you're behind in your credit, you can't buy a car, you can't buy a house, you can't do all this. Very, very serious from the point of view of limiting your human freedom. Tension, obviously, uh, in the house when people say they'll do things financially or you know, build, house, build sheds in the garden, paint the kitchen, whatever it may be. It's all procrastinated. Tension, irritation, resentment builds up and so on. And then internally in a person, self-criticism, eventually going to self-loathing, embarrassment, not wishing to deal with the fact that it hasn't been done, a lot of shame, again a huge issue here, the sense of fraudulence and self-loathing and panic and anger. There's more. Isolation, job loss, a little bit of overlap, government penalties, tax liens, fines, etc., credit card, late payment, mortgage cards, accidents or physical injury, loss of professional license. We know many doctors who've lost their license. And this is what has brought me so close to realizing uh, much of my business has got to do um, with sending reports uh, for people who need them in order to qualify for their license. And sometimes my reports have been late uh, for various reasons. And the other person has been inconvenienced and they have been brought to the edge of uh, jeopardy by my late report. And then in turn that backflows to me and uh, my late report, I will then have to take responsibility for that and so on. And that has never happened yet, touch wood, but it could easily happen that I might be reported 
uh, for <coughs> either incompetence or whatever it might be, negligence in not having a report in on time because that's part of my professional duty. And this is my number one, I would believe, problem in, in life, procrastination and professional risk and, and jeopardy and so on. And I've sailed very close to the wind from time to time in my life. Um, and then we have several examples of people who have committed suicide because of just simply the tsunami, the overwhelming obligations and responsibilities uh, uh, that have settled about them and they've uh, blown their heads off. It's all about fear, fear based on the belief that whatever you do will, will never, never, never be judged as being adequate or good enough. And of course that goes back to childhood usually. Uh, that's from AA, false expectations appearing real, projecting onto the future how it will be, insisting that the outcome should be this way or that way, either good or bad, but having nothing much to do with reality. These are common fears. You would have your own too. Um, uh, every one of us has our own set of fears that panic us most of all. Um, these are just some of them that I put down. Fear of change, fear of failure, fear of success, either one. Uh, losing control, fear of asking for help, fear of being mediocre. Planning, postponement. I could never, when I came into recovery first, I could never tell the difference between planning and projection. Planning is when you take a list and you pay attention to the tasks and the objects that have to be uh, finished on the list and then you put it in a hierarchy or an order. And the, 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 uh, the importance of the hierarchy comes from the nature of the work that has to be done, not from your opinion of what is important or not important. Once you begin to project your opinion into it, you're then into projection. And then once you're into projection, you're into controlling the future. Uh, the task will not control the future. How you insist that the task will proceed will be the controlling factor, and that will end up in a procrastination and an ineffective outcome. Is that? It's a kind of a complicated business, but that's the difference between planning is where the task is obvious. You do one, two, three, four, five, and then you do it. And we have, I have handouts at the end uh, which give you a plan and an objective that you can take home and also an index of procrastination that you can complete in the privacy of your own bathroom with the door locked securely so that nobody can find out really uh, what your index would be. But it will give you an idea of where you are on this spectrum. And they'll be outside as you're leaving. And malignant procrastination is, uh, in a sense, what I have had in the past, no longer, I think, because I've worked very hard on it. And my procrastination is much, much better now than it used to be, say, 10 years ago or so. Uh, and that's when it becomes a permanent part of your life, almost affecting everything you can do. Malignant procrastination can be a symptom of underlying psychiatric illness, such as bipolar disorder. But more likely, it is just to be a concomitant of being an alcoholic or an addict, with all of the fears and anxieties that are involved in that, and is, in a sense a personality disorder that arises from an alcoholic lifestyle. I call it an alcoholic lifestyle personality disorder. Uh, the, the character defects that I had yesterday, and I'll briefly show you today, that is an alcoholic lifestyle personality disorder which responds to treatment by the 12 steps. And the fellowship, which most personality disorders do not, but it is reversible, thank God. So there are cultural, familial, and dynamic roots of procrastination in the culture People identify with that perfectionism. If you project Sorry, God. that you have to be perfect, then anything short of perfect will not be satisfactory. It will be uncomfortable. You may give up the task before you complete it. And uh, this is, of course, very common in our Western culture. And you get into a paralysis of perfection where you can't move in any direction because nothing is right and the anxiety and panic begins to set in. Competition, parental favoritism in the family. You're compared to your older brother or sister in terms of academic achievement. And competition and sibling rivalry is immediately set up. And nothing you do is able to match what they have achieved. And then there's compulsive and malignant winning. I don't know about Europe these days, but that's certainly, you've got to win. There's no option to not winning. That's what it said about Iraq, incidentally. There is no option not to win. But how about a situation which is unwinnable? There is no option not to win. So you can get into a situation of impossibility uh, where all kinds of difficulties can begin to occur in this quagmire and it 
goes back to that picture, I don't have it today, of the railway tracks yesterday, not knowing where to go or how to turn. Cultural influences, boys and girls are taught differently in terms of achievement and what they're supposed to achieve and can achieve as small children. The thrill of sailing close to the wind and beating the deadline, courting risk, because of procrastination as the deadline approaches, is a kind of an adrenaline rush to it. Will I do it? Won't I do it? Who is out there? Who am I competing with? And so on. There's a lot of internal stuff that goes on with even a simple procrastination. Going it alone. We're taught in this culture to go it alone and never, never, never ask for help. Ever, ever. Why? Because asking for help is to expose and admit our weakness and our shame. So we don't ask for help. We go it alone and then we collapse. And then we have to rationalize the collapse and so on. We'll see that cycle uh, in a moment. That's the old slide just reminding us uh, what we're doing here. Again, this is a brief discussion because this is for recovering alcoholics and others. I'll very quickly go through this reminder from yesterday that addiction is a brain disease and that the problem with addiction is that the switch gets cut off here between the midbrain, the emotional part of the brain, and the reasoning, humane part of the brain with compassion and spirituality and love and all of those kinds of things here. These get cut off one from the other, and they operate independently, and we are no longer fully human. That's what happens with acute intoxication, and it happens with chronic drug addiction or alcoholism and makes us less than human. Uh, so that when we come into recovery, and fortunately, thank God, uh, these processes are able in most cases to reverse themselves and to rejoin the connection between this part of the brain and this part of the brain and allow us to function in a humane fashion uh, thereafter, which is why recovery takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. But these, these breakdowns, these interruptions can be healed uh, simply through the spiritual life and the spiritual discipline uh, that we have in AA. Um, missed a slide there. Addiction is a brain disease, but more than a disease, it's a way of life, as we know. It will dominate everything we do. And, of course, recovery, if it's going to be successful, must also be a way of life. Most people outside our field think that, oh, well, he stopped drinking, you know, in June. He's fine. They don't understand that that's just the beginning. That's not the end of anything. It is only the beginning of the recovery. And that we know uh, from the people who've relapsed and ourselves at times coming close to relapse that it has to be a central, if not the central part of our lives if we are to be successful and maintain long-term recovery. And towards the end of this lecture, I'll just show you very quickly some of the revolutionary aspects of our divinely inspired program which make it very difficult for other people to understand because they are so revolutionary and to some extent for the general way of thinking about things so unreasonable. Why should anyone have to do that? They stopped drinking last January 1st. But what we have to do to stay sober is really, uh, when you look at it, quite remarkable. These are the uh, survival behaviors that I put up yesterday. Some of you may not have seen them, but they are the characteristics, the survival behaviors that keep us alive um, while at the same time drinking or doing drugs abnormally uh, for 20 or 25 years. And these behaviors are necessary in order to accomplish two tasks of being as responsible as you can while at the same time being more or less permanently impaired by alcohol or other drugs. And you bring these, uh, these incidentally, I didn't say it yesterday, these, these three slides are the products of procrastination. About five or six years ago, um, I had to give a talk uh, someplace and I needed to give a talk about, I needed to include some of the character defects of drinking in my, in my lecture. And I didn't have time because I had postponed everything and I was literally rushing out to go to the lecture and I didn't have time to go to a textbook and I couldn't have found these in a textbook anyway because they don't really know about them. And so I just sat down and wrote down my own character defects and there they are. I quickly consulted my fourth step uh, that I had written and there they are. And so I've kept on to them and I, I, I really... I, I, I identify with these and these are part of me and not a single one of them has gone away. But I have a different way of dealing with them now because they are part of me and they're as much a part of me as the other more decent, generous parts of me. Uh, there are some of those in there too. But I think that's terribly important. That's a first step statement about my powerlessness and who I really am. 
not just intoxicated, uh, but under the inf- chronic influence of alcohol and also in my sobriety. And they go on. Plus a deep yearning for intimacy, safety, and belonging, and that remains, but it's much better now because I have found ways. Um, Fanula mentioned this morning in her wonderful pitch that we are working on our relationship towards intimacy and so on, and we are making great progress on that. Uh, but th- that was a, a great hole in my soul for so many years. And this is what I lived with, humiliation, alienation, isolation, and dehumanization of self and others. And lived alienated and alone in groups, in families, in institutions and organizations of which I was a part. And that's the reason, because it's a cunning, powerful, baffling, dangerous, devious, ugly and hidden disease of groups. Of groups. And nobody would acknowledge my alcoholism uh, except myself for many years. But as I said yesterday, they... My diagnosis was being Irish, and that's how I was expected to behave, like a performing bear. Be given a few drinks and dance and fight and joke and do what people expect Irish buffoons to do. Um, All modeled on Brendan Bean. God bless him. My brother wrote his biography, and uh, that's what people believe us to be. And we oblige, largely, and dance to their command. I did it for 20 or 30 years and almost lost myself and almost lost my life many times in the process. So yesterday, again, reminding us that there is a culture of addiction, which I just showed you, and a culture here, uh, which is common to people in recovery. Uh, This is what we try and achieve or come close to in our recovery. These are the goals and standards, I think, that we would take from the big book and what we hope Uh, will be a different way of living and a different way of life than the other three slides I showed you. This is the culture of recovery. The other is the culture of uh, addiction. And moving from one culture to the other can be very painful and difficult. In fact, it's a culture shock. And the the way I got these ideas was by studying the concentration camps and the fact that after liberation from the concentration camps, the people, when the gates were thrown open, the inmates couldn't cross the threshold into freedom because they had been acculturated to being in this terrible place, this uh, place where death by the afternoon was common. And they were so ashamed, not because so much of what they had done to, what was being done to them by the imprisonment and the murder and all of that, but by what they did to themselves and each other in order to survive what was being done to them. And that was the reason for the silence of the survivors of the concentration camps. I think it was also, and this is my own personal quest, the reason for the silence of the famine in Ireland, uh, because nobody could really talk what the people, the survivors, did to themselves and to each other in order to survive. And nobody can talk about how people moved into the houses of the evicted and took them and allowed the others to die. And that is the true cause of the civil war in Ireland that continues to this day. People who change their names to disguise their guilt and so on. So this culture shock that exists between moving from active addiction with all the guilt and shame of that into an entirely different culture, I think we tend to underestimate from time to time and that people move into recovery and relapse quickly because they go back to what they know best. So in my opinion, getting sober requires a period of authentic suffering. And this is, there is, I, I am very concerned about uh, certain forms of, um, of uh, treatment now that are beginning to arise which are designed to eliminate suffering. Uh, to reduce the pain, and yet the treatment, it seems to me, as we know in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the most effective treatment, most consistently effective for alcoholics, is to create situations in which people can feel their own pain, and we sit and don't take their pain away from them, allow them to suffer, but hold them and embrace them, and share our experience, strength, and hope to give them sustenance to get them through their own period of authentic suffering. But I do not believe, some people say that's old-fashioned, to believe that suffering is necessary in order to achieve this breakthrough in the culture from addiction to recovery. I happen to believe it's not only advisable, but it's essential. And um, there is a great conflict raging about that at the moment in which I'm happily involved. (laughs) Uh, 
Bill Wilson says, um, you know, self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings. Nobody wants to do that. But no, diabetics don't want to inject themselves, ourselves, with insulin. We, I'm diabetic, I don't have to inject yet. But I have to take pills and I have to follow diets and things like that if I want to survive. We have to do this kind of thing if we want to survive. There's just no choice. So back to procrastination. These are the excuses. I don't have the proper equipment. I've been working so hard I deserve a break. If I wait, I'll get it really first class. Now, say we're in a procrastination. What date is today? The 19th or 20th of uh, October. And we've got to have something done by November 1st. So that's about six weeks. Just think of that. Anyone who's got something to get done by six weeks. Well, I'll wait until I'm inspired. The muse comes and then I really get I must have exercise or sex first. Uh, it's an important uh, technical demand to have an orgasm before you get to work. And, uh, and uh, <clears throat> so you have to make arrangements for the availability of that as a resource for creativity and productive work. Um, that's a great rationalization, I can tell you. But nevertheless, uh, I do it better with a night's sleep. And all of the things. Why like this one? Why mail it Friday? Nobody will look at it until Monday anyway. So the creativity of the excuses is quite extraordinary. Particularly this one, I work best under pressure, as if you're not already under pressure by resorting to these crazy rationalizations. Now this is a writer's uh, get a sigmoidoscopy, <laughs> refill medications, trim nose hair, remarry. That's a common one. Uh, sharpen all pencils. There are 2,000 pencils. Buy a furry pet and so on and so forth. Uh, remove wisdom teeth. And these are all philosophies of uh, Eastern philosophies and that would require in Russian literature which require years to finish previous project. Abandoning previous projects is a very common way of dealing with the next one. These are out of sight. I, I, these are my own, again, my own places where I used to I used to have uh, whole floors full of briefcases because they're, they're magic briefcases. You can put urgent material into a briefcase and in some magical way, three months later, it's not so urgent. The person may have died, the business went out of operation or something like that. The briefcase is stuffed full and then you go on to the next briefcase and, and you sort out a whole briefcase full of extreme urgencies and there are only three that have to be attended to. Um, the desk drawer the trunk of the car, under the car seat, under the bed. This is the only one which uh, I realized that I was just, after I'd done this, as a matter of fact, that these were exactly the places I used to hide my booze. And a huge connection happened at that moment. I said, oh my God. And they're the only place I didn't hide booze and it was behind the books in the bookshop. But everywhere else I had bits of, you know, old Cribari wine I had a very well educated palate and I ended up drinking at a half gallon Christian Brothers wine uh, two bucks a half gallon uh, were hidden in various in the places in the uh, in the house and in the garden in the car I bought a Volkswagen bus in order because it had all kinds of hiding places from the police from my wife or anybody you could put the booze in there uh, so again, uh, you might find some interesting uh, parallels if you do a little inventory on your own procrastination here. Get the right tools, very important. Uh, uh, that's you can't do anything. And I often meet procrastinators at 2 a.m. in the Home Depot in the United States, <laughs> furtively going along with lists, you know, that they're going to, these are full of projections and fantasies that they're going to do, build bungalows in the garden and saunas and, you know, repave the streets and all kinds of things. And, and, uh, and they never do them. We used to have, when I came to Los Angeles first, we got some land and I used to go out on a Saturday morning and buy all kinds of circular saws and chainsaws and power drills. And I'm no good at anything like that. And I'd come back, you know, at 11 o'clock in the morning from the hardware store and then I'd start to drink while I was contemplating what to build and how to do them and eventually we had to get a shed built by somebody else to put all of these unused <laughs> power tools that were still in their boxes from the carport where they were getting wet. So, but it was good intentions, good intentions. Uh, so these places exist and their profit margins are plainly due to procrastinators. 
computer solutions, wonderful since the 80s. Surf the net. Go Amazon. Do you have eBay here yeah. in Europe? Yeah, eBay. Hours on eBay. Buy presents for next Christmas in April. They're wonderful. Uh, solitaire until it's worn out. You have to get new software. Chasing links, defragging, and now cybersex, which is a major social problem in the United States. That's another day's lecture. It is a whole lecture. Very severe uh, problem, but again, a haven for procrastinators who can pretend they're doing research on social problems, especially any... Especially counselors and people like that who might have use for this information in their work. <laughs> but I have actually cases that the reason I got interested in is six pilots, commercial pilots, who were uh, addicted to pornography and cyber sex, who were having sleep deprivation at critical phases of flight. Fortunately, there's always more than one pilot in the cockpit, but uh, it, it's a very serious problem for neurosurgeons in long operations who fall into their own wounds because they're having, uh, you know, because of this, uh, cybersex, uh, staying up all night and sleep deprivation. Now, this is the cycle of hope. Um, it can go on. This is what, but this is the dynamic or the underneath of every procrastination. And it can happen in minutes, years, months, or weeks, depending on the task. But now we said we have to have something finished by December 1st, let's say, six weeks from now. Well, it's a letter, it's a book, it's whatever you have to do, uh, a preparation for a job, uh, write your curriculum vitae, do all of that. Well, now I know I've got to do it, and it's six weeks, and I'll start early this time, because I procrastinated in the past, but I'll start early, but you know, I have to do the garden, and then there's... Uh, some other things I have to do and then I'll get at it. But this time I'm going to start early. So a week or two, oops, excuse me. A week or two passes. And then he said, well, I, I know, but I've been thinking a lot about it. So I've got to start soon, though. And uh, it's now getting up to October 30th, you know, and getting into November. And after November, in most years, comes December. So if you're in recovery anyway, if you're drunk, it doesn't always follow in that sequence. But then I've got to start soon. And then what happens if I don't start? You're now in the second week of November. And you've been doing a lot of thinking about it. You may have cleaned the office, in fact, got some new pencils and got a new computer but the guy has to come along to plug it all in and put the software in so you can't do it until you uh, and then the anxiety begins to start oh shit I should have started sooner and it begins to become the only thing you can think about so it's interfering with all the other things you're supposed to have done and now there are more things backing up uh, in ahead of you that need to be done but this thing is still there looming on the horizon like a gigantic menacing object and you can't get it out of your mind and then you have to take strong action then you have to start painting the kitchen going out to buy a new car helping somebody a great thing well I've got to help somebody go to more meetings to get your you know resolve up and then get a newcomer become somebody's sponsor everything but it and you'll have justified reasons and all kinds of compassionate reasons and humanitarian reasons for not doing what's terrifying you then you can't enjoy anything. And then you begin to get serious about deviant. I hope nobody finds out about this. You can't talk to anyone because the shame and the fear and the terror and the menace is beginning to build. And even a week away from, 10 days away from the opportunity to get completed, you say there's still time and then you have to make a choice. It's now three days for an object, a task that would, should have taken six weeks. And you're faced with this, you haven't got the stuff, you haven't got anything, what am I going to do? Oh my God, it's too late, I can't do it, so why bother? Then you relax, you sort of de mess, like an erection going, and there's, there's always next time. And you say to yourself, I've learned from this, I know this bad news, but I will never procrastinate again. And this down here says, bullshit. <laughs> but that's what you say, and when you say that, you're setting up you're setting up the next procrastination when you say that. And so it goes. Because you never are dealing with what's underneath it all. Choice B is, okay, I'll do it. And then the seductive thing is to set up the next one. Once you start doing it, you find it's not so bad. And that all of this sweets of terror has been unfounded. 
and you can't understand why didn't I just do it in fact I wish I had more time now because this is so enjoyable I'm learning and it's wonderful and this is creative and you have this exaltation this almost ecstasy and look I'm doing it and you want to show people you're doing it and then it comes out but it's not as good as it should have been if you'd started it on October 1st so you already have you don't have your work judged appropriately and you can make up your mind I could have been better it could have been better but you will never and the next time I'll never procrastinate again and the next time I'll start early and really do it right and then I'll know who I am is that familiar that cycle isn't it isn't it incredibly neurotic how this terror of being judged for who we really are and what it must have been like at school or with parents or older siblings Thank you, Mike. Whoops. There we go. No. There we are. Thank you. Wonderful. That's it. Uh, this was an example of extreme co- collaboration. We planned this in advance. Mike offered to do that so that I wouldn't have to be running across. And uh, we learned from our mistakes. Um, anyway, this is the cycle. And this is quite extraordinary because it's very hard to interrupt it. It's like a drinking cycle. It's like any compulsive cycle. You keep on promising not to do it and you know how destructive it is and yet you keep on doing it over and over and over again because in this case it has to do with who you, not who you are now but who you were then and terrified of your father's or your mother's judgment or the priest's judgment or somebody's judgment about who you are and if you don't come up to snuff, don't meet the standard, you're nobody, you're no good because we have no way of measuring that as small children and it says if we didn't grow and know how good we really are and what skills and resources are available to us it's as if that all is set aside and we are again small children now with ourselves all internalized we don't need a father or a priest or a policeman or anything or a rabbi or anybody to in a sense put us down or undermine our performance and criticize us for failing to conform to a standard because we do it all ourselves And I think that is where one of the great liberations of 12-step spirituality and the 12-steps comes because they allow us through a higher power of our own choice to get away from that cycle, to open a window out of the cycle, a door out of it, and get into an entirely different terrain. This is an experiment in prohodiation, that new word, doing it today, and that's the, the handouts are there outside. You can take them home. It simply says, select a goal, Make a plan, visualize progress for this little task before December 1st, optimize your chances of success, get the equipment that you do need, not more, not less, break the project into small chunks, I've got to have such and such done by next week and then another week, make a plan, stick to the time limits, stick to those, don't wait until you feel like it. The asterisks are ones that you have to do, the others are more or less, a little less essential, but the asterisks are, they're the ones you have to pay attention to. Expect obstacles, reward progress, doesn't have to be perfect. Get a procrastination recovery sponsor. That's probably the the most important thing to do, but who the hell do you get? (laughs) Somebody else is doing the same thing. So you can... Huh? Well, it may get sticky. I agree. So I, I, what I recommend is people who, who both are doing the same thing and comparing. Because in, you know, in 12-step work, the, the sponsor is no better in a way than the sponsee in that they've been through the steps maybe once or twice more and they can provide some wisdom and guidance. But whoever it is, you need somebody. It doesn't even have to be any in a 12-step program. You need somebody whom you can prepare and say, I'm going to confess things to you and I need to be able to talk to you intimately in this process so as I get it done. And then always use the 12 steps, your higher power and your sponsor. So that's on the handout outside. These are strategies for success. Plan your work, work your plan, share your fear, game, and shame and guilt with your procrastination sponsor and so on. Same slide as before. Our brains operate under different rules even when we don't have drugs in there. While we're recovering for the first year or two as we saw yesterday, our brains are recovering too. So um, this has to be taken into account particularly in early recovery. Going into shame, 
because this is the basis of it all. Um, all of these disorders here are conditions uh, result in loss of control, stroke and intoxication and so on. And you would agree, I think, that loss of control is the defining characteristic of addiction and procrastination. And procrastination, trying to control the time, the tasks and whatever, and they get out of control, then we get anxious and ashamed. In fact, procrastination is a desperate attempt to control the fear of losing control. So it becomes a sort of control system, uh, <coughs> and it's a form of omnipotent or magical control over time, because you can compress time like a concertina in your own mind. I have enough time to do it. But as the time becomes shorter and shorter, the anxiety goes up that you have to perform ever more radical mental operations to know that a task that should have taken six weeks can now be accomplished in three days. That's a procrastinator's way of dealing. You've got to put a, a stop in the time glass. Uh, so we do it magically. Well, how did he get it in there? And once control is lost, the addict procrastinator, we don't have our ability to draw upon the resources of our moral value system to stop the madness. And that's exactly the same as in active drinking and drugging. The moral system that we cherish, that we were taught, that we love and that we teach to others is not available to us under these circumstances. The loss of control produces shame. That's the picture yesterday, now upgraded from yesterday. It says, it's a, for those of you who weren't here, that's an early picture taken in the Garden of Eden of Adam and Eve. And uh, uh, they were naked and they were not ashamed. Uh, this is when they were put out of the uh, Garden of Eden for having failed to conform to the standard of God. And they are certainly ashamed. Here they are deeply ashamed for all of humankind and there's shame about shame people don't talk about shame because they're ashamed of being ashamed and so it's a topic that is underground and seen only in poetry and in literature and drama and plays but rarely in our families or in our daily discourse the emotional spectrum is shyness, embarrassment, humiliation and ultimately dehumanization which in my opinion happens to most of us with chronic alcohol and drug problems when we are working at less than fully human levels of uh, interaction and social exchange and morality, as we'll see. <coughs> Failure to conform standards, parental expectations, shame leads to isolation, hiding, guilt and silence. That's malignant shame that I showed you yesterday. It's hard to be intimate until you've dealt with these issues here. And these, I think, are the issues that most of us deal with in recovery and the 12 steps of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and all of the, um, the fellowship and all of the service in Alcoholics Anonymous is the basic treatment for that terrible condition of malignant shame, which is kind of permanent. Uh, you have to work on it all the time. Shame blocks access to feelings and connectedness. <coughs> you would agree the last time you felt shame, you can't feel a feeling other than the shame, except to want to hide and not let anybody see you for who you really are. You don't want to be exposed. And for recovery um, and treatment, uh, access to feelings is essential. That's what we do in the 12 steps. And it is essential for um, prohodiation. You can't see that in the back, maybe. It is just as essential for the cure for procrastination, which can be such a malignant, destructive force, not only in our lives, but are the people on the other end of the procrastination. And that was the, one of the things that really moved me to uh, through uh, discussions in AA originally with my sponsor and others uh, to do something about this that it wasn't just me uh, the effects of my procrastination were injuring and harming others and so that there was a hostile angry component to that procrastination that I finally in terms of the responsibility prayer had to take account to be accountable and responsible for Spirituality is connectedness. Spirituality, I think, in AA terms, this is only my own opinion, is about being connected to something meaningful outside ourselves. Whatever it is for each individual that's meaningful. That's the antidote for the isolation of shame, connectedness, and also for the, it's the antidote <coughs> for procrastination. 
because shame induces fear. I don't think these terms are too large or too radical to describe the fear that one can descend into in true procrastination, abandonment, annihilation and banishment and terror. And they are the four basic human fears. As a baby, as an infant, we are terrified of being abandoned. When our mother goes to the toilet, we have no idea that she will ever come back because we have no experience to say that she will. We can be crushed or annihilated by a pillow, by anything. We can be banished left at the side of the road, either as infants or old people. And then all of this is experienced as terror. And I think in that part of that cycle of hope, uh, when we're going through the frustration and trying to articulate the time and compress it, uh, we go through some of these fears at a very deep and primitive level. And ultimately dehumanization, where we will cover up and behave in ways towards ourselves and others irresponsibly that are less than fully human in a civilized way anyway. And addiction will do the same thing to you unless you have a meaningful spiritual connection to protect you from the isolation of malignant shame. That should be procrastination will do the same thing to you. Everybody is spiritual. So spirituality is the issue here. Everybody is spiritual. Uh, There's some... As spiritual leaders, I mentioned that by being born, one is spiritual from the Latin meaning spirit. When, when the uh, after the bacchanalias, when the uh, Latin the Roman doctors with their assistants used to go around in the morning after the drunken bacchanalias and orgies, people would be lying on the ground, and the assistants used to go with a piece of shiny metal, and they would put the shiny metal in front of this inert corpse lying on the ground, and if there was breath. If there was fog on the metal, the assistant would call to the physician and say, Ecce spiritus, ecce spiritus, meaning there's breath, life, and they would take that person and bring them to whatever the equivalent of the hospital, the others would be thrown in the lime pit. So that spirit means breath and life. And here are just some spiritual leaders uh, that we know about. All tough mothers, these people. These were not uh, wilting violets in any sense. Just remember the image of the world. <clears throat> That's, I always find that beautiful no matter how often I see it I find it very moving and the first time I saw that was about 15 years ago in California where I was giving a talk at a conference and the person who was giving the talk the first talk of the conference played this and I was terribly I was very deeply moved by it and I wept and, and uh, was disturbed by it in many different ways and at very different levels and found it extraordinarily beautiful and two hours later I was giving my talk and in the middle of the talk I had a revelation and I stopped my talk whatever it was about depression or something like that and I said you know that was a beautiful film this morning that tape and I asked the people and everybody said yes they had thought it to be beautiful and I said I've just realized there's something missing and I said you remember that earth and it's in every one of us if it is in every one of us and everybody's a child of God on the earth. And where is he? Doesn't he have a right to be there for truly spiritual? See, this is the trouble with spirituality. It's not exclusive. Beyond our control. Do you know who that is? Eichmann. you know who that is? Mengele. Mengele, age 27, when he came back from Stalingrad and was rewarded by becoming the <coughs> medical officer for Auschwitz. Hmm? Well, that's the problem. He wasn't. He was extremely sane. The demonic aspect of the Nazi Reich was that they were not demonic. And they would go and perform their experiments. He fully expected to win the Nobel Prize if the Germans won the war for his contributions to humanity. The doctors would go from their houses, they would get up, have their breakfast, play with the children, send the children to school, go to Auschwitz, perform their experiments, kill people with injections of phenol into the heart, whatever they might do, bring ham sandwiches for them to the Jews before they killed them. Then they would go home and have their dinner, play with the dog, play with the children, send the children to bed and listen to Mozart. 
It's all in the literature. It's all there in their memoirs and their diaries. And what can human beings can do under the circumstances of propaganda and terror and inducement and seduction is virtually limitless. See, the realm of spirituality lies beyond psychology and behind morality. And one of the move, one of the turning points in my life was in 1961, in August of 1961, when Eichmann was on trial in in Jerusalem, and we had a small psychoanalytic seminar. I was a first-year psychiatric resident at Hopkins at the time, and uh, most of the psychoanalysts were Austrian or German who had come before the war, fleeing Hitler, Jews, and I remember one. And this was at the same time as the trial. And he said in the seminar, you know, he said, and he, he said, you know, he said, it is the task of psychoanalysis for us as individuals and as a profession to find the Eichmann fit in each one of us. I'll never forget that statement. It chills me to even repeat it that the ultimate horror could be contained in any one of us. It's in all of us. It's in, that's what the movie says, except they don't depict it. Mother that's right. Well, I mean, it's a universal principle, but we tend to sweep it away and it has a direct effect on our 12-step work because that's what the 12 steps are about. Finding the worst and then dealing with it, not eliminating, but living with it and even learning to cherish it, as we'll see. Hmm? Sorry? I can't hear him. Facing up to it. Facing up to it, yes. Yes, but even identifying with it in some way and neutralizing it through identification. So how about if we had Hitler and Mengele, they're just from one system of evil. How do we deal with him? I was criticized at the International Doctors in AA where I gave the spiritual talk on the final morning of that conference uh, two years ago in California when in offering prayers for others I also offered a prayer for Osama bin Laden and his comrades for their liberation from hatred. And I said, and there was a murmur in the room and people stood up and whatever, how could you say that? I said, well, because I believe they perhaps are motivated by much of the same kind of negative emotions of hatred that most of the people in this room are very familiar with. And there was a sudden silence in the room and people sat down. What do we do with him? The great ultimate <clears throat> infraction of violation of medical ethics was to put the examination of his mouth on world television. There could be nothing more humiliating than that. And it was deliberate. Him and all the others. How about Stalin? 40 to 60 million people dead and murdered by his hand over the years, both in the war and in, and Churchill. Churchill was on the list in... Uh, there was a movement in uh, Nuremberg uh, to indict Churchill as a war criminal for his bombing of Dresden, which clearly was not necessary. In fact, was against the treaty that they had with Germany. But out of a, perhaps a drunken rage, uh, 80,000 people died in a few days at a time in the war which was entirely unnecessary. It was February 1945 and the Allies were already in Germany. Here are a few, just, you know, these are kind of people that we tend to exclude from our company. But they are children of God. And they belong in that beautiful little movie in my, and we have to come to terms with that, not with any of those personally, but with the reflections and the interjections of those in us. Years ago, I had that slide. <laughs> it's very funny. You see, it says down here, your nominee here. And when <clears throat> showing this uh, slide in Orange County and a woman got up and she ran shrieking and screaming from the room and therapists got up and drove to go out and therap her in the lobby and uh, she said what well, she thought it said your name here <laughs> and she didn't like the company I'd put her in <laughs> so these are the old Judeo-Christian you know things that I've said nothing new today or yesterday showed you some research slides yesterday but we knew it we, we, that just confirmed what we already knew. 
and I'm saying nothing new today but suspending judgment and feeling and healing our own shame and making room for the pariahs we are the pariahs God knows if the you know if there aren't pariahs around they're in the 12 step rooms most of the people in this room and not just the alcoholics but maybe many of the codependents would you know meet diagnostic criteria for being a pariah a person who under normal circumstances should and could be shunned as many of us have been shunned because of what we have done under the influence of our terrible disease I happen to identify and like pariahs uh, I have a tie on today that is full of reptiles and snakes and lizards and things I feel at home so this is, comes from that book I recommended yesterday the spirituality of I wish I could say I'd read Meister Eckhart in the original but it's quoted in that book by Ernie Kurtz the spirituality of imperfection to get at the core of God at his greatest one must first get into the core of himself at his least or worst and I truly fundamentally believe that as the task of recovery and learning to cherish in yourself I have to learn to cherish in myself those character effects I showed you to cherish them because they're part of me and I know when one of those is getting active I exert judgment on you and I get angry at you and I want to reject you and I want to have you led away in chains or I want to in some way diminish you then I know that I'm struggling with that active that active ideology of hatred in me and then I have to attend to that and then I will back off from you and uh, try and sort it out spiritually with my 12 steps and with fellowship and with discussion with people like John and others and uh, that's the way we work so sharing your experience strength and hope to help others achieve sobriety that's from the preamble as we know well the only way you can share your experience strength and hope is by accepting these vulnerabilities in my view the weaknesses and the negative side and about that tape incidentally that is unobtainable because that tape since it's been made has been locked in a warehouse in San Francisco all of the copies of it have been locked in a warehouse in San Francisco because the two people who made it the person who took the photos and the person who sang the song and you will admit that it's, it's truly innocent and beautiful and I believe and they're fighting over the royalties and the rights so the tape is now locked up irreconcilably in a legal dispute because I believe they excluded our friends here. They only dealt with one side of the coin of spirituality. And now they're dealing with the dark side between themselves and we are deprived, the world is deprived of that, that beautiful thing. So I think that once it's integrated, our own shame and guilt and treachery and betrayal and other forms of human perpetration become spiritual resources for helping ourselves and other alcoholics that's just an elaborate statement of what we already know if you want to be in the flow of grace you've got to get in the stream of abuse these are the roles I said yesterday that I believe most of us have occupied all of them one way or another not just one or two because the sobriety is the whole enchilada and to achieve freedom from malignant shame the shame reduction step specifically and the 12 steps are those the 1st, 4th, 5th, 8th, 9th, 10th and 12th they really are the whole system is a shame reduction system and that's what it principally does but here are some revolutionary elements just to finish up just take a minute or two in the spiritual practice and philosophy of AA that other people don't understand and this is why it's so revolutionary because it applies really for us alone and we try to explain it to others but they really don't understand it very well uh, we know open-mindedness, honesty and willingness the opposite to what we came in with trust God, clean house, help others a short way of talking about the 12 step by Father Joe Martin who is a, an alcoholic priest in many years of recovery runs a treatment center now quite elderly uh, but has made many very good educational films on alcoholism trust God, clean house, help others Bill Wilson an illness which only a spiritual experience will con conquer from page 46 of the old big book the third edition serenity in the face of catastrophe also Bill Wilson daily meetings people say why do you have to go to a meeting every day 
Well, why do we have to eat or defecate every day? It's part of a natural process that goes with being a recovering alcoholic. Struggle to understand and incorporate the spiritual concept of a higher power. Very unpopular these days. People are trying to do that or are accused of being in the right wing of fundamental Christianity. Anger, even when justified, Fanula talked about this, is the great enemy of all alcoholics because it can develop into resentment. And that limits who we are and what we can do. Going marching on governments and demanding parity and whatever. Who are we to do that? But if we don't, who will? It's a great paradox and a great problem. Acceptance and surrender, a medieval term. We're not supposed to surrender to anything. But we have to, to surrender in order to live. But people outside will say you shouldn't ever surrender. The inflated alcoholic ego must be deflated at depth. That is contrary to most psychotherapeutic systems that I know of. And yet we do it regularly, happily and frequently in 12-step recovery. Bill Wilson again. Select and submit again a feudal medieval term. But in the initial stages we have to do that. To give over our damaged, wounded minds and souls to another person whom we might hardly know and trust in them that the advice and direction they will give us is good. And I know that from my own experience and that of many other people, they say that the turning point in recovery for them was when they were able to take direction and suspend their own judgment about themselves. Submission, in other words. Service. Most people don't know that we do all this service. Spend a lot of time doing that. They think we just go to meetings once a week and have coffee connects through weakness, not strength. Again, a revolutionary concept. Spiritual value of suffering. Authentic suffering is a sine qua non of essential for recovery, moving from one culture to another. Again, to remind us of where those ideas for me came from. Gifts for recovering alcoholics. You might think it's funny, but these are opportunities for spiritual growth. And when, you, when they don't have, if you're going to from Los Angeles to London and you're on a 747 and they don't have your upgrade, to which you're entitled and have earned by supporting the airline for 10 years, and they say they don't have it and the only place they have if you want to go is the seat next to the toilet right at the back and you have to sit there for 11 hours inhaling the colonic emanations of 246 <laughs> other people and, and enjoy it. And, and realize that this is an opportunity for spiritual growth and you'll be a better person because of it. You may have enteric colitis, but you will be a better person because of it. And God damn it, that happened to me. And I was a better person because I could see it as an opportunity for spiritual growth because they said I'm lucky to have a seat anywhere on any plane and be going somewhere and have somewhere to go. So when we remind ourselves in gratitude of who we are and where we could have been, uh, that to me, I can only learn that from. So all of these events that occur uh, are opportunities for spiritual growth. And that reminds me of how I need to behave under circumstances where before I would have been literally dangerous. Obnoxious, if nothing. Dangerous, uh, certainly. So spiritual recovery supplemented by cognitive behavioral psychotherapy. This is the treatment system which works best. Motivational interviewing and appropriate psycho psychotropic medications, in other words, when appropriate. That will make you happy, joyous and free and that's all there is and thank you for listening and God bless. <laughs>